For those of you who are new, my name is Chad Lowe. I'm one of the pastors here at Tri-Village Church, and I'm so excited to be with you and thankful that you are with us. Um, whoops, knocked over the water there. I'm so excited I'm just knocking things over. Um, uh, if you would do me a favor and fill out the Connect card, we would love to get to know you, to greet you personally. At Tri-Village, we want you to have a great experience here, a Tri-Village experience. Um, it's a weird one because we're all family and we're weird, but we love each other and we love you. And so we're so thankful you're here with us. At Tri-Village, you're not just welcomed here, but we truly believe that you are welcomed, you are wanted and needed here. And so we, we hope that you not only feel that, but you experience that as you're with us this morning. Um, we have been going through a series this summer called One Story, Jesus and Abraham, where we have been looking at the gospel through the Old Testament, seeing the thread of the gospel, that the scripture is really just one story pointing to the person of Jesus, and how the story of Abraham actually points to the greater story of Jesus. So we're looking at Jesus through the life of Abraham, and it's been a really, really great series. And so we're in the fourth week of that. And we'll be there again this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you grab them out, turn them on, and open up to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16, we'll be going from verse 1 through 13, um, looking at this account of Abram and Sarai before they were Abraham and Sarah. Just so you know, I keep saying Abraham and Sarah, so I'll just continue doing that, even though it says Abram and Sarai. Um, just know I'm talking about the same person. Um, so if you are there, one of the things that we do here at Tri-Village is we stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence. So would you guys please stand with me? If you are there, say amen. amen. All right. So Genesis 16, starting in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took the Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows that she's pregnant and she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. Um, it was the spring that was beside the road to Shur, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord, has, the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all of his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much in this passage so much weight, so much pain. And Lord, we, we come to you, um, some of us here bearing weight and pain. Lord, I pray that we would find the healing that only comes through you, through your word. I pray that we would find restoration, that we would find redemption from our sin, from you. Lord, I pray that as we study the life of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar here, God, that you'd be glorified, that you would speak to us, that we would find our focus in you. 
And we'd live lives focused on you, dependent on you. Lord, that knowing that you are the giver of good gifts. And Lord, that every good gift comes from you. Lord, I pray for this morning. I pray that as I speak, that it would be your word spoken through me, that your spirit would be at work in and through me. Lord, whatever is from you, let us not forget it. But whatever is from me, whatever is of my own thoughtful intelligence, Lord, let us forget it because it's worthless. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, God. You're my rock and redeemer. Pray this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So today, we're going to be really paying specific attention to this word, focus. Focus is such a simple word. It's really common. If you're a student in class and you're starting to doze off, your teacher might slap your desk and say, focus. Um, Or maybe at work, you're just not paying attention. You need to focus. Focus is something that is a part of our everyday life. We, We need to focus on the tasks at hand. We need to focus on what we're doing. But it's also something that we continually lose our focus in. And what we're going to look at today is what it means to focus on the Lord and how quickly it is, how easy it is for us to lose our focus and what can happen as a result of that through the life of Abraham and Sarah and through what happens through this account, this tragic, this weighty account through the life of Abraham and Sarah. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking of a time where focus was um, uh, of utmost importance for me. So a week ago, as a birthday gift, my wife got me a Groupon to take a pilot's lessons to fly a helicopter, which was awesome. That was super cool. Um, I've always wanted to be, like, be a pilot. Thank you. Yeah, you can clap. It's okay. Um, I didn't die. It was great. Um, and so I, I've always been fascinated with uh, being flying, and, and I've wanted to be a pilot. I'm far from that. But anyway, as we were up there, the instructor, he wasn't necessarily a, a personable guy, but he was nice. And he, um, but he, was, he was just saying, like, all right, here's what you got to do. Like, you're going to fly this thing and look at the propellers as they're rotating around. He's like, see where they're at right now. He's like, lock that position in your mind. Like, they, they need to stay this way. This will keep us going forward. If, if they go too far down, we'll start to make a descent and that's not good. And if they go up, then we're, we're going to, altitude's going to raise really quickly and that's not good. And so he's like, you just want to keep it steady and, and keep it focused. I'm like, okay, sweet. And so I'm doing it, I'm like trembling, but super excited at the same time and just trying to like hold this, like an Atari joystick I'm holding, just kind of like hoping I don't crash this thing. But then he would start to like talk to me or ask questions. And I felt, because I'm more of a personable person, that I, I would be rude not looking at him. <laughs> well, so he'd ask me something, he'd be like, yeah, no, no, I think, and then I'd be like, oh no. All of a sudden we start to descend really quickly and I'm like, uh, thankfully it was like a driver's ed car where there were two things he had control so I wasn't going to die. It was safe, honey. And... Um, but, but it was amazing how quickly just a slight lack of focus could have had serious damage, um, especially if he wasn't there. I would not be here today. And so, um, but even just like the, the slight change in focus can alter our total trajectory. They can alter our path. And, and as we think through our lives, there's things that we, we want other people to be focused on. We, we want to be focused. It's really important to be focused. And I think of like you don't want, if you're, if you're ever in an operating room, you don't want your, sur- your surgeon more focused on what they're doing that weekend. You know, they're just like kind of talking, yeah, I'm going to go golfing. Ooh, ah, sorry, I made the wrong incision. You know, it's like, you don't want that. That's terrible. You want them to be focused. Or um, how many of you are texters and drivers? Anyone will? No? Okay. Yeah, thank you. Last time we had no one. You're all liars. We know. Um, <laughs> we know. You might not be texting, but you're, man, you're checking iTunes um, or whatever it is, your email. And um, it's amazing how a quick a quick alter in your focus, a quick, like you, you see that message come through, how it can have dramatic consequences. And so what we see here is that Abraham and Sarah, 
they, their, their focus has shifted. It's not that it's totally off God, but it's shifted. And that shift has allowed sin to take place in their life, has allowed um, a, a whole host of turmoil to, to come about. So let's take a look at that. We're going to be looking at the story of Abraham and Sarah through this focus on the Lord, the, the need to focus on the Lord through these three things, these three points. So uh, their failure, Abraham and Sarah's failure to focus on God, um, Hagar's newly discovered focus, and then what our ultimate focus should be, what, what it means for us. What is our ultimate focus? What does it mean to really focus on God? So let's start with a failure to focus. So through that, we're going to talk about um, a few things. If you put the next slide on the screen, we're just going to look at um, Abraham and Sarah's failure to focus. Marks of what, it, what, what are some things in our lives that we might see as marks of a failure to focus, and then distractions that keep us from focusing on God. Now, I want a little disclaimer as you're going through and you're taking notes. We'll be spending a lot more time in this first point. So when I'm done, you're not like, oh man, we're going to be here until two. Um, just so you know, the, the next two are going to be a little bit quicker. But there's a lot to unpack in this passage. There is so much rich, um, both pain and depth to, to go over. So let's start with Abraham and Sarah and this, this account of what happened. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Sarai, Abram's wife. See, I told you I'd do it. Sarai's Abram's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. She said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave into your arms, and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. This is a, an incredibly sad picture. Before we get too far into it, there's a few risks that we run into in reading scripture. So Genesis is a historical account of actual people in scripture told through narrative. It's a story. We get to see it through story. But if we don't exercise proper hermeneutics, the interpretation of scripture, we can run a few risks. So sometimes we read Genesis as if we were reading like 1 Corinthians, where it's very clear, do this, don't do that. This is what it means to follow the Lord. This isn't what it means to follow the Lord. And so we can look at figures like Abraham and Sarah and go, these are the patriarchs and matriarchs of faith. So whatever they do, we should just assume that it's either okay or that somehow the Lord permitted it because, well, it's Abraham and Sarah. They're like the founders of faith. So sure, it's got to be okay for them. But that's not actually true. What we see in scripture is that we actually get to see the narrative play out, see the negative consequences of sin, rather than the direct imperative or, or indicative of this is sinful and this is this is righteous. So we get to see that. But then also another error that we have is sometimes we can take our own cultural contexts and insert them into scripture. The things that we know and uphold or reject today and go, wow, how could they do that? Like these people are horrible. And yes, they, they sinned and they've done horrible things, but it was also a different day and age when they were living in um, the early 4,000 BCs. And so there were different cultural norms, cultural contexts. So we can't insert our own interpretations of our culture into scripture and assume that they translate one for one. Okay, so as we do that, there's a few things we need to clarify as we begin. So first thing I want to clarify is that there's, uh, there's two things that are present in this that are not actually uh, permissible by the Lord. And the first one is polygamy 
And the second one is slavery. So polygamy, let's start there. Um, what, if you read, if you've read the story of Abraham or if you've read any of Genesis or any of the Old Testament, you see that the heroes of faith tend to have lots of women around them. Lots, especially the guy Solomon. He had tons of them. And so he had tons of wives and concubines and all these people that he had bore children with. And so Abram, of course, this, this patriarch of all of them, he has multiple women. But it does not mean that the Lord is saying, oh, it was, it was okay. It was just a different time. You don't understand. No, no. In Genesis chapter 2, we actually see that the Lord institutes marriage and it's between one man and one woman. One Woman. And so any alteration, any distortion of that, any addition or subtraction is a distortion of what God has created. It's a distortion of what God has set up as paramount. Anything is a distortion of that. If, so um, infidelity, adultery, homosexuality, any of that we see is a distortion of what God has intended for marriage. And so the polygamy here, this, this fact that Sarah is so willing to offer Hagar she was legally acceptable. It was legally acceptable. This is actually very normal because this is how you made sure that your family line would continue. You had more children, more opportunities for your family to, to flourish and for the wealth of your family to carry on. So it was a normal cultural thing, but it wasn't a permissible theological thing. And so that was it's a very key distinction for us. The second one is slavery. Um, Sarah and Abraham both had slaves. And so slavery was present in this culture. And though slavery looked different than the slavery we understand from America, um, there are certain qualities that were actually very similar. And so with that is Hagar was actually Sarah's property. So she belonged, everything about her life belonged to Sarah. So it wasn't, uh, again, it wasn't culturally wrong for Sarah to offer up Hagar to her husband because she owned Hagar. Um, it wasn't wrong then for Hagar's child to be claimed as Sarah's because Sarah owned Hagar. So, but it does not mean that the Lord is saying, oh, that's okay. You see, men and women were created in the image of God and the only thing they were supposed to rule was the animals and the ground. Really, their biggest task was to be fruitful and multiply and then to rule the ground. They were never, ever, ever supposed to rule each other. And so this is a distortion of what God has created. And so people have placed themselves in the position of God and announced themselves as ruler over the people that are equal. And so th this is a distortion. This is not permissible. So I, I want to clarify that because it helps us shape. They're they are abiding by cultural constructs rather than theological constructs. And, and so there's some pitfalls that happen through that. So within that, there's a few things that I need to uh, address that we see to help us really understand the weight, the gravity of what's happening in this section. And the first is that Sarah was barren. Now, barren is really not a, a, an accepted word in our day and age. Um, although barrenness is, is present, so usually we would say that people just can't have kids. Barrenness just holds a lot of weight to it. You don't hear it as often. But Sarah was not able to have children. And we see in this passage that she is attributing her lack of being able to have kids to God. And she's going, God doesn't, he's kept me from having kids, so we need to figure something else out. But barrenness was a little bit weightier than it is for us today because of the cultural constructs. It wasn't just that she couldn't have kids and that it was um, hard for her emotionally and physically and for her family because they wanted to have kids. Her only role in this culture was to bear children. That's it. Her only role was to be a mother. She was literally failing at life. 
there is a lot more weight to this barrenness. She is seen as the person who Abraham, over, the, over all of these slaves and all the wealth that they've amassed, he is the leader and his counterpart is unable to do the one job that she's supposed to do, and that's have kids. So this barrenness is heavy, but it's a socially constructed weight in addition to the emotional and physical constructed weight. Um, and, and we can actually see that, that barrenness is present sometimes in our lives, and it might not be barrenness of childbearing. You might actually experience a socially constructed barrenness where you feel like you have failed at life because your identity is wrapped up in your performance. Your identity is wrapped up in the things that you do rather than the gifts that God has given you. And so we see this barrenness in Sarah. The other thing that we see is that they have waited 10 years. 10 years. Um, that might not sound like when I first read it, I'm like, wow, they waited 10 years. Like, that's a long time. Um, 10 years is a really long time. Y'all can't wait 10 minutes. Like 10 years is a long time. Since the Lord had first come to them and said that I am going to bless you, I'm going to make you into a nation, I'm going to give you descendants so numerous you can't even count, it has been 10 years since then. And they're still waiting. They're still waiting for the Lord to show up. They're still waiting for the promises to come about. They're still waiting. Guys, think about how much changes in 10 years. Or in a, in a decade. So for example, I mean, this is about 12 years ago, but iPhones didn't exist until 12 years ago. Toys R Us no longer exists. Blockbuster no longer exists. Instagram, Snapchat, most of the apps you use on your phone did not exist 10 years ago. If you ever had MSN Instant Messenger, uh, that no longer exists. But 10 years ago, it was thriving. 10 years changes a lot. A lot happens in 10 years. They had been waiting for one thing, for Sarah to get pregnant. And she's already, she was 65 when the promise was made. She's not getting any younger. Now it's 75. She is waiting and waiting. So what we see here is the weight of all of this, of the weight of being barren, the weight of waiting for the promises of God has caused them to try to tweak the blessing, to try to use human efforts to earn the blessings of God. And so they go about it through another means. They go, we're going to be blessed. At least it'll still be Abraham's blood child, and then it'll be my legal child. So they go about this through a different means. And so we see from this a whole host of turmoil. We see discord take place between Abram and Sarah, from Sarah and Hagar, and even Abraham and Hagar. We see that this, this manipulating God's plan doesn't go well for them and is met with immediate regret, immediate shame, and immediate turmoil. So when it comes to focusing on God, they, they decided that they had waited long enough and that they needed to focus on another means. And a lot of times we do the same thing. We might be waiting for a long time for God to answer whatever that prayer is that you've been waiting for him, the promise that you feel like you deserve or that maybe even God proclaimed to you you feel like you've been waiting to get out of this situation and God just has left you. Maybe he forgot about you. Maybe he was never with you in the first place. Maybe this was all a sham. Maybe he led you out to wherever you are just to leave you there because he has a cruel sense of humor. Waiting. Waiting. And we can have, a, it's really hard for us to focus on the Lord and the seasons of waiting. To say, okay, God, I'm still trusting you. I'm still walking with you. I'm still patient. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to look at six marks of a failure to focus on the Lord in the midst of this waiting. Six marks that we see through Abraham and Sarah, six marks of what it means, and maybe they're present, maybe all of them, maybe some of them are present in your life. If, if these are, it's likely that there are things that are captivating your focus, captivating your attention, captivating your devotion other than the Lord. So the first one is impatience. We see that Sarah and Abraham, though they've been patient for 10 years, can't wait any longer. They need to find a way because who knows, they're old. Death happens. And so they decided that they are going to go about their own means to bring about their own blessing through their own child, rather than wait for the promise of God to be fulfilled by God. What's really wild about this is one chapter before this, just one chapter, and and, and this wasn't a whole lot of time that elapsed between chapter 15 and 16. Um, At most, it was maybe eight years, but it was likely more within like the one-year mark of um, when. It could have even been the night before, but we don't know. But we see that in chapter 15, this is actually one of the greatest accounts or credits to Abraham and faithfulness. You read about this account in Abraham when you read the book of Romans. You read about this account when you read the book of Galatians or the book of Hebrews. This is one of the largest moments of Abraham's faith in his entire life. And it goes like this, Romans chapter 15, or not Romans, sorry, Genesis chapter 15, starting verse 1. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But then Abram said to him, and just listen to the pain and frustration of this. Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? The one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. This waiting has created impatience in both Abraham and Sarah. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and your own blood, he will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And this key verse that has been quoted over and over again in the New Testament, Abraham believed in the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This was a remarkable moment of faith, that the faith that Abraham displayed was actually credited to him as the Lord's righteousness. And then here we are, Sarah and Abraham, willing to just say, well, we're going to go about it our own means. The Lord blesses me and I trust that he's going to bring about a kid, but who knows how that's going to happen, so this sounds like a good idea. Abraham was, was not, he didn't fight very hard against this plan. Um, And we'll talk about that in a minute. But impatience might be a mark of a failure to focus on the Lord, just like it is for Abraham and Sarah. The second one we see is apathy. Abraham shows a lot of apathy in this passage. Apathy towards what is wrong, apathy towards sin, apathy towards what he knows. And the reason that I can say that he knows that this is wrong is because in the Hebrew, at verse 2, the very end, right before verse 3, it says, Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. It was like, Sarah said, hey, I have an idea. I need you to sleep with my young, attractive slave. And he's like, really? I guess. Sure. If you, if you, I mean, if you insist, honey, like, that's what you want. Like, sure. It, that, that's, it wasn't like he said, hmm, we should think about this. He's just like, okay, sign me up. I'll do it. I guess I'll go do my duty. And so he agreed to what Sarah said. But in the Hebrew, this is a direct correlation to the Garden of Eden. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit that Eve gave to him, 
This is a direct point back. So if the, the person who is reading in Hebrew would be able to go, yeah, Abram ate the forbidden fruit. Abram did what was sinful. He was apathetic towards God. He was indifferent towards sin. And it didn't prevent him. He knew the promise that God had for him. It had been laid out. The Lord just made a covenant with him, not a covenant that Abraham had to fulfill, but one that God fulfilled on his behalf. He knew the promises of God and he failed to lead his family. He failed to tell Sarah, no, 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 no. I've, I've spoken with the Lord. He told me, don't be afraid. He said that he's going to be my shield. He said that we're going to have a child. No, 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 he didn't do that. Instead, he said, sure, let's try your way. But not only that, after the deed was done, after he did it, after Hagar uh, had resentment towards Sarah and then Sarah had resentment towards Hagar, Abram says, hey, do what you want with her. It's not my problem. And he allows his wife to sin. Not only allows it, he enables it. He becomes apathetic towards sin. When you fail to focus on the Lord, you don't pull the weeds of sin that grow in your heart. And it festers and grows and takes root. And this is what's happening to Abram. This impatient, apathetic man who failed to follow Jesus. The third mark that we see is jealousy. Jealousy, uh, there's actually, this is, kind of, this is a, a big one. So there, this is a multifaceted jealousy. So Sarah obviously is the jealous one here. But this jealousy isn't just wrapped up in like the fact that Hagar is able to have a kid and that she's not. So think about this for a moment. This barren woman who for 75 years has been unable to have a child. Now her greatest fear has been confirmed. It's her. She's the one who's barren. Abram had a kid. Abraham got Hagar pregnant. Sarah's the one who isn't. So this jealousy towards Hagar is weighted around knowing, one, that I was worried that I really was the one who was failing here, and now it's been confirmed. I am. But not only that, the woman who succeeded slept with my husband. So she succeeded with the one that I love. So this is a jealousy of not just that you got pregnant, but you got pregnant with my man. And then, not only that, but Hagar's status elevated. Hagar was a maid, uh, maidservant, which basically meant she helped out around the house, did like chores and cleaning and stuff like that. Um, but now she's been elevated to the greatest servant of Abraham and Sarah because she is the one. She is the only one who bears the offspring of Abraham. She's now elevated to the highest level. She's, she's still a slave of Sarah. So she's not equal. But man, she probably felt equal. And so it's, you did this to me, and so when we see this picture of, of uh, Hagar showing disdain for Sarah, it's wrapped up in probably like a, yeah, I'm the one who has the kid. You don't. But this was your idea. And so Sarah is going, no, no, I don't love the fact that you are being elevated to an equal with me. You're not my equal. I own you. Jealousy. Jealousy turned into bitterness man, it's easy to become jealous when you feel like other people are receiving the blessing that you are supposed to get. When you feel like someone else got what God promised you. That's what we see in this. The fourth mark of a failure to focus on the Lord is blaming. This next part, this, um, 
There's a lot of euphemism in this passage. The English translation um, doesn't quite capture the, the weight or the um, raw uh, voice that both Sarah had, that really that Sarah has in this passage or what happens here. But Sarah is blaming Abraham. This was my idea, but you were the greater sinner. You're the Adam here. Through you came about sin for our family. This is your fault. And now she hates me. And so this is a picture back to the garden where after they ate, Adam goes, it was her fault. She gave it to me. And Eve goes, no, no, no. It was the serpent. That was the one who like convinced me to eat it. So it's pointing back to this garden moment. But not only is this blaming happening, it's really, really raw, euphemistic language. Because when she says, I put my slave into your arms, it literally is, I put your slave into your lap. And you can figure out what the crassness of that. At best, Sarah is being incredibly crass, something that she really shouldn't have been to Abraham. At worst, she's being incredibly vulgar. She is being raw with her emotion and her pain here. I gave you this person and you're allowing her to treat me like this? You got what you wanted. I didn't get what I wanted. And there's a blaming here. It's easy to blame when you think that maybe your circumstances allow you to not own the sin in your life. Well, you don't understand it. It's just the family I grew up in or the, the neighborhood I grew up in. Or you don't understand how, it's just, these are the people that, this is what they do to me. So it's just, it's just natural response. It's really easy to blame other people instead of owning your own sin when you aren't focused on the Lord. Because you have to be right. You have to be the blameless one. So you blame other people. The fifth mark of this is anger and rage. This is where the euphemism is also true because when it says that Sarah mistreated Hagar, that word is used elsewhere in scripture. And and most notably, it's used in the book of Exodus when the Egyptian slave owners would beat the Israelite uh, slaves for whatever reason, whether it was failure to meet the task or not. But it was this picture of physical abuse of beating. It wasn't just mistreated. It wasn't like she was just really passive aggressive towards Hagar. It wasn't that she was like just calling her mean names or, you know, being rude. She was physically assaulting Hagar, this pregnant woman, Hagar. So much so that Hagar left. And so this hurt, these wounds, these circumstances, this failure to focus on God Some of you might even be like, I was really hoping you wouldn't bring up anger. Because anger takes root. You feel like you didn't get what God promised you, that you didn't get a fair cut, that you're being overlooked or forgotten. And it builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And over 10 years, now there's this rage. Rage of her own sin, rage over her husband's sin, rage over God not listening or answering or seeing their pain. And she mistreats Hagar. The the final mark that we see is a legalism or a works-based righteousness. So this is actually the whole thing. We see that there's a plan, that there's this plan of blessing placed for Abraham and for Sarah. There's this plan of prominence and of giving them not just a descendant, but also land to, to provide for them, to be their sole provider. But when things get hard, when it doesn't go the way they thought, They go, let us work out our own plan. Let's try to help. Maybe God needs us. Maybe it's my works that allow him to do it. You know what's wild is that 
throughout all the promises that the Lord gives to Abram, it never, he never identifies that Sarah is the one that will bear his child. It never says that I'm going to give you and Sarah the child. So maybe Abraham was like, well, he didn't specify you. So Hagar, I guess, yeah, that, that makes sense. That checks. That'll like check all the boxes. And so he goes, it's human effort mixed with divine intervention. So this is what you got. Ta-da, we got blessing. And so instead, there's two things that kind of happen when you look at legalism. The first one is that you feel God owes you. Lord, I've been serving you for 10 years. I've been wandering through the wilderness. I have been waiting and waiting, and you still haven't provided for me. You owe me. Look at what I've given you. I give up my family for you. I give up my land for you. I give up my nephew for you. You owe me. You owe me. But not only do you think that God owes you in legalism or works-based righteousness, you are trying to earn his favor. So instead, it's like, God, I'm going to continue to do these things because I want you to bless me. What I want more than you is your blessing. What Abram wanted and what Sarah wanted more than God in this moment was to be established physically in the place they were at. They wanted their family, they wanted their land, and they wanted it now. They didn't care about a future blessing. They didn't care about a future home. They didn't care about a future family. They wanted a physical family right now. So legalism either says, you owe me God, or I will do what you ask in order that you bless me and that you give me what I want. And that's what we see here. These marks of a failure to focus on God, where God is a means to an end rather than the end himself. So there are some barriers, there are some distractions that keep us from focusing on it. You might see, like, yeah, yeah, I, I see that. I see that we need to focus on the Lord. I see that we need to follow him. I see that we need to pursue him. I don't want to be like Abraham and Sarah. Uh, honey, I'm not going to sleep with Hagar. Don't worry. It's, uh, you know, uh, hopefully that never is the situation for you guys. But the distractions, there are two that we see come up in this text, and that is both timing and clarity. Timing and clarity. These are distractions or potential barriers that keep us from focusing on God, from putting the full weight of our faith, the full weight of our focus, the full dependency on God. And timing is that God's time is very different than our time. God's timing is very different than our time. 10 years is a long time, but you know what's wild? They waited 25 years. Isaac didn't come for another 15 years. How many of you are in your 20s? or younger. That's all or the majority of your life. For those of you who are 50 or younger, that would be waiting for at least half of your life. At the very least. 25 years. Abram was 100. Sarah was 90. The timing of the Lord is never, never dependent or contingent on our timing. He works outside of our time and is always best. To where if we knew what he knew, we wouldn't question it. But since we don't, that's all we do. We question and we complain and we craft our own plans. Timing is a barrier that prevents us from focusing on God. The second one is clarity. Some of you here are the type of people that really love to know exactly everything that's going to happen. Like, okay, okay, I get you want me to do this, but can you give me like, the 87 step plan to get there. Like, let me, okay, I just, I know it's, I hope it's not too much. I just want to know what's going to happen like next year and 10 years from now and 20 years from now. That's it. Can you give me that, like that picture? Like, how about where I'm going to live and what job I'm going to have or how are my kids going to turn out? Am I going to have kids? I mean, 
am I going to have kids? Uh, you know, can I, can I get the whole plan? Maybe part of the plan, just a sliver of the plan? Some of you are mad that I didn't put all six points up there earlier, that you had to wait for them. You were like, come on, Chad, I need to know. I need to know where you're going with this. And so you feel like the lack of clarity causes you to have lack of faith. So you have lack of focus. I don't have a clear picture. The Lord didn't clearly identify that Sarah was the one to get pregnant. So, well, maybe I can figure out things my own. The Lord didn't clarify if this is exactly where I'm supposed to be or exactly what I'm supposed to do. So let me just find some wiggle. This is a gray area where I get to do whatever I want and God just approves of it. No. Timing and clarity can be two huge distractions, two huge barriers for us from following and focusing on the Lord. So now that we've seen what a failure to focus on God is, a failure to put the totality of our sight, of our devotion, of our attention towards God, what does it look like to have a proper, a aligned, a right focus? And we get to see that through the example of someone who has a newly discovered focus. This slave girl, this Egyptian Hagar, who for the first time encounters God, and it totally and radically transforms her life. So let's look at this focus of God and what it means for us. So starting in verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. That blessing sounds really familiar. The angel of the Lord said to her, You are now pregnant. You will give birth to a son, and you shall name him. That part sounds familiar too. Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery, and he will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she, has said, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. There's a few things I want to unpack here to understand the weight of what's happening for Hagar. The first is that she is a fugitive slave. There's a danger here. Not only, so she was in a situation that was so bad that it caused her to run away. But the danger is now that she's a runaway slave, it is legally right for anyone to kill her. So she faces potential imminent death. So whatever her situation was, it was bad enough for her to risk death to get out of it. That's where Hagar's at. And you can see that she's running back to Egypt because this spot on, on the path of Shur is, is on the road back to Egypt. So she's running back home, trying to find refuge, trying to find safety, trying to find security. That's where Hagar is in this moment when she meets this angel of the Lord. And that's the second thing I want us to see. So it says the angel of the Lord, but by and large commentators agree that this is actually the Lord himself. Some think that it's a Christophany, an embodiment of Jesus Christ before he came to the the earth um, as Jesus, the savior of our sins. Others think it's, it's God revealed to us or revealed to Hagar through the form of an angel. But the reason that there are two things that we see that actually indicate, there's two reasons that commentators who are much smarter than I reason to see that this is actually the Lord at work. The first is that at the very end, Hagar um, projects and names the Lord and says that you are God, El Roy. That he, she gives him the name of God and he never corrects her. 
Whereas in other parts of scripture, when people uh, bow down, so example for John in the book of Revelation, he sees this angel and he bows down and worships the angel and he says, get up. You don't understand. I'm not God. Like, we're, we're equal, buddy. You can't do that. Um, but actually, more than equal. There's a whole nother sermon there. But anyway. Um, but anyway, you see that, that, that God doesn't correct Hagar here and accepts the name of God upon him. The second one is the blessing that the Lord gives. This isn't a blessing that the angel would give, but it's a blessing that the Lord gives, that I'm going to make you, I will make you into a great nation. So it's a blessing that comes from the Lord. Now what's wild about this, okay, now we understand that God himself is speaking to Hagar. God himself shows up to Hagar. This is what's crazy. There is no other woman in all of scripture who the Lord speaks to directly. None. Not Sarah, not Ruth, not Esther. Even when Mary finds out that she's bearing Jesus, it's not the Lord who's speaking to her directly. She is the only woman in all of scripture who ever directly speaks to the Lord. What's also wild about that is it's the pagan Egyptian slave girl. What does this mean for us? The Lord sees us. You don't have to be an elite class to get the affection, to get the relationship with the Lord. He sees you, he knows you, he hears you. And what's also crazy is when the Lord shows up to other men in scripture, he comes as a pillar of fire, a burning bush, a whirlwind. These mighty forces of nature, these awe-inspiring pictures of glory. Here, he shows up as a friend, a comforting, relatable friend saying, where are you coming and where have you gone? I see you. I hear you. I know you. He is exactly what Hagar needs. It's the Lord who shows up to Hagar. And the other thing that's wild is, so Sarah waited 10 years to have the promise fulfilled to her and then really 25 years. Hagar went back. The Lord sent her back to potential abuse, mistreatment, maybe even death. All she knows is that Ishmael needs to be born, this baby who's going to be a son named Ishmael. She doesn't know what's going to happen to her, but she goes back. And then 15 years later, she's finally released. And it seems like a terrible circumstance because Isaac is born and Sarah says, get Ishmael out of here. I don't want him to have any part of my blessing. But what is happening here is that the Lord is freeing a slave. Right now, she's running away as a fugitive with a death sentence. Fifteen years later, she leaves a freed woman, able to experience and receive the blessing that God promised her. What seemed like ill will from man's perspective was divine intervention from God. So for 15 years, she focused on the promise of God. For 15 years, she waited, fixed on the Lord. This divine friend that she found in the wilderness became her anchor through the storm. She went back to the one who mistreated her. And so there's a few marks that we see, these um, marks of what it looks like to faithfully focus on God. That what it looks like, what you see, what God gives you or what shows up when you faithfully focus on God. So there's three marks that we're going to look at. The first one is we see strength to endure difficulty. So what God calls Hagar to, he equips her to be able to do. He says, you are going to go back to Sarah. 
You are going to go back to your abuser. You are going to go back to the one who mistreated you. And I am going to give you the strength to endure it. Now I want to pause here. This is not a case study for how to handle abusive situations. This is not a case study to how to handle domestic violence. This does not mean, and this would be a false, this would be an egregious sin for me to say that you are to go back to your abuser because that's what he had Hagar do. That is not the case. You are not called to go back to the person who abused you, but God does call us to go back to difficult situations. And for Hagar, it happened to be that she was called to go back to her abuser. We are called into difficulty, but it doesn't mean that we are called to just willfully uh, receive abuse. So if that is you, if you're in a situation like that, I do not want you to see this as a case study and go, well, Chad said I had to just endure it. That's not, that's not the truth. That's not what scripture is saying. For Hagar, the Lord is calling her back to something difficult to bring freedom, not to have her sit in abuse. The Lord called her back so that she could experience freedom as a slave to fulfill the promises of God. I want to make that very clear. He gives us the strength to endure what he has called us to. And it will be difficult. And the reason I know it will be difficult is because when we are called to be disciples, the Lord says, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. They will hate you because they hated me first. It will be difficult. If you follow Jesus, it's not easy, but it's worth it. And he gives you the strength to endure. The second mark that you see is life-defining purpose. So the Lord lays out for Hagar what she's to do. She's supposed to go back and submit to her mistress, Sarah. She's going to bear and care for Ishmael. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it was cool. And then she, uh, she gets to wait on the promises of God. You know what's awesome is that we, as followers of Jesus, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you have also given a life-defining purpose. Before he ascended to heaven, he said, you are to be my disciples. You are to go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are to teach them all that I've commanded you. And guess what? I'm with you always. You are called to be my disciple. To not just be a disciple in 2 Corinthians, we see that we are ambassadors. We are representatives on behalf of Jesus Christ. We get to bear the gospel to other people. The good news that we receive, we get to live out for others. But it's difficult. We have a life-defining purpose. Whether you are in full-time vocational or part-time vocational ministry, or you are in the working world, you are called with a life-defining purpose to be an ambassador, a disciple. Hagar is going back, and she's going back changed because she's been changed by the Lord. She's enduring difficulty because the Lord is with her. The Lord sees her. The Lord hears her. We have more. Our Lord died and we are free. We get to serve free. Marks of focusing on the Lord. The last one is forgiveness. Now this one is interesting because we don't know if Hagar really ever forgave Sarah. We, we, we don't know that. The context doesn't tell it because the next time we see her, she's banished. She's cast out. But what we do know is that a mark of focusing on the Lord is that the Lord is the one who forgives us. The Lord forgave Sarah. The Lord forgave Abraham. And even for the disdain that Hagar had, the Lord forgave Hagar. That the, the sins that they committed did not disqualify them from the blessings that God had for them. 
that the forgiveness that they experienced, they now got to uh, pour out to others. And so a mark of focusing on the Lord is that you are probably going to be wronged. Most of you are like, amen, brother, amen. But you're also given the great gift of forgiveness, not just to receive it, but to give it to others. You get to go back to your abuser and forgive them, the person who wronged you. Doesn't mean you permit them to do what they do, but forgive them. Why? Because you were the abuser. You were the Abraham. You were the Sarah. Maybe even you were the Hagar. But the Lord sees you, hears you, and died for you to experience his presence. Marks of focusing on God. Now, there are a few practices we can put in place, a few things that help us to focus on God. Instead of these distractions, these barriers, these are habits that we should instill, habits that allow us, like, okay, Chad, I want to focus on the Lord. I want him to be the, the central theme of my life. I want to be able to endure the waiting, the, the season of dryness, going, where are you, God? These are things, these are, these are habits that we see from the text that allow us to focus on the Lord. The first is the presence of God. So, we just can't ask the Lord to be like, be present with us. But guess what? We actually have the Holy Spirit with us. So if you believe in the Lord, the Holy Spirit is with us now, even in this room. We have the presence of God. And so we get to pursue his presence through the reading of his word and through prayer. And also gathering together what you're doing now as the body of Christ. We get to experience God himself. We get to pursue the presence of God. The relatable God who sees and hears, we get to go and learn. We get to ponder. We're going to get to that in just a second. But we get to see and read and we get to praise and we get to pray. So the second, the second practice we see is praise. We get to offer up thanksgiving. We get to go, God, you have been faithful in the past. When you are focused on the Lord, when you are focused and fixated on what he has done, you start to see his hand at work in everything in your life. You look back and go, wow, God was there. Wow, God took care of that. He was with me then. Lord, you've been faithful. I'm going to praise you for your past faithfulness. I'm going to praise you for your present faithfulness. And I'm going to praise you for your future faithfulness. Because I know that there's one thing I know about you. It's that you are faithful. And you will continue to be faithful. We get to praise the Lord for his faithfulness. Offering up thanksgiving to God. But then we also get to offer up petition. What that means is life isn't always rainbows and sunshine. Life kicks you in the teeth and you get to go to God and say, this hurts. I am grieving. Do you see the anguish I feel? Where are you going and where have you come? I'm running away from my abuser. I see you. I hear you. I hurt for you. We get to go to God and give our cares to him because he cares for us. We get to go to God and give our concerns to him because he actually deals with our pain. We get to make petition to God. But oftentimes we don't. And the last thing is we get to ponder. We get to meditate on the promises of God. We get to meditate on the attributes of God, on the character of God, on the words of God. We get to remind ourselves day after day after day after day, moment after moment, on his promises, on his per person, and on the praises that we get to offer him, that he has been faithful and will continue to be faithful. We have hidden his word in our heart that we might not sin against him. We ponder, we chew on, meditate on who God is. So what does all of this 
look like for us? How do we do this? What is the ultimate focus that we talked about? Like, I, I get this, but I, I'm trying to like praise, okay, I got that part. I got the, the pursuer, or the presence. I got that part. I even got the petition, but like, do I just like think life gets hard, Chad? I'm in, a, I'm in a season right now that's hard, Chad. You're telling me that you just want me to like sit and think about God for a while and that all my problems will go away? Not necessarily. That's not what I'm asking you to do, but in part. What we're doing is our ultimate focus is on the gospel. Our ultimate focus is on the gospel because every single day we need to be reminded that we are way worse than we ever thought we were. We need to know that we are wicked and that God's love is way greater than we ever imagined it could be. That his redemption is way better than we ever could have hoped for. That all you have, or have ever earned and ever deserved is pain and suffering. But what God gives you is mercy and grace over and over and over and over again. That like Hagar, you are seen, even though you deserve to be punished like Abram and Sarah. You are the abuser who got grace, who got the blessing, who got the promise. You need to be reminded of the gospel. Because ultimately, this whole story, all of this is about Jesus. Abraham is not the hero of this story. In this part, he's more of the villain. But what we see is that it's pointing to a greater hero, the fulfiller of a greater promise, the person of a greater blessing. And so what we see from this story is actually that Jesus is the greater Sarah. He is the better master who frees his slaves, sets the captive free. He enacts true justice, treats his people with true mercy. He's the better spouse. He doesn't lead his spouse into devotion to idolatry or adultery. But instead, he leads them into protection, into unity fixed on the Lord. He's the greater Abram. He's the better leader of the household. He leads us into the promised land of heaven. He's the better bridegroom. He cares for us, protects us. He's the shepherd of his bride, his church. He sacrificed and laid himself down for us. He's the greater Hagar. He came to serve, not to be served. But in his service, he was rejected. He was mistreated. He was beaten and he was murdered. He's the greater Hagar who was seen by God while Jesus was forsaken. At the cross, the Father turned his back on him so that we would always be seen, that we would always be heard. He is the greater promise. At Jesus, every nation, every tribe, every tongue will bow and profess that Jesus is Lord. He is the blessing to all nations. He brings us to the promised land and he gives us inheritance as heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. We have... We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to be focused on the gospel. We need to be fixated. We need to be devoted. We need to be delighted in the gospel. Because in the gospel, there is freedom. In the gospel, there is life. In the gospel, you find patience in the midst of waiting. In the gospel, you find peace in the midst of strife. In the gospel, you find purpose. And we get to see like the writer of Hebrews writes at the very end of the chapter, chapter 12, after going through the whole list of faith with Adrian, Abram is listed as, in chapter 12, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you would not grow weary or lose heart. Though we deserve the punishment of Abraham and Sarah, we get the blessing and the protection and the provision of Hagar. The Lord is good. He sees you. He hears you. He died for you. Let us focus on him. Let's pray. Lord, we're humbled. We, we don't deserve this reckless love, this radical grace, this transforming power and mercy. But Lord, you give it to us. You give it to us through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. And Lord, the blessings that are given to Abraham are fulfilled later in you when you came and you bring blessing to all nations that through Ishmael or Isaac, Lord, we can be saved. That you came to the Egyptian slave girl. That you saw her and know her. Lord, you see us and know us. Lord, help us to focus on you. We are so quick to be distracted. We are so quick to be consumed with our circumstances. But Lord, we want to be fixated. We want to be focused. We want to dwell on you and the truths of your gospel that tell us who we are and tell us whose we are. You are our God and we love you. Praise in your name. Amen.